Take a look at this little video. Uh, it's actually a commercial that um, you might have seen on TV before, and it's a FedEx commercial. But they're kind of making fun of what it is that this one guy's life was all about. And then we'll pick it up from there. Just watch this short little clip. Come on, I need an answer. If you're shipping internationally, you gotta use FedEx. Brilliant, Dal. You're a real lifesaver. <laughs> so then I said, if you're shipping internationally, you gotta use FedEx. You're so smart. So I tell these guys, if you're shipping internationally, you gotta use FedEx. These guys have nothing. So I say, you're shipping internationally, you gotta you use FedEx. Okay, that's right. Tell them. And I think we all remember the time when Al here said, If you're shipping internationally, you've got to use FedEx. All right. Now, the reason I show you that is that whole little commercial, that whole little scene, uh, was written about this, the way that they wanted you to know that if you're going to ship internationally, ship FedEx. And the advertising agency that made that would be very thrilled that we were, had that pounded into our head again this morning. But the point is, is, it, is what they showed in that is this became the defining, defining moment in this guy's life. That uh, he was in this meeting and the guy said, come on, I need an answer. What are we going to do to improve business? And he went, well, if you're going to ship internationally, ship FedEx. The guy kind of almost said offhand. And it became that which gave him meaning and purpose and greatness and value throughout the rest of his life. Where he talked about it to get a woman to marry him. Where he was talking about it even when this child was born. Where he talked about it when he was at the old folks home. And they talked about it when he was buried. And, we, and, and they used humor. Like, wouldn't it be sad? Wouldn't it be awful? If that's ultimately what your life was defined by. That in one meeting, at one time, you came to the right answer that made the man go, yes, thank you so much. Great insight. And that this guy really felt like, wow, that was a great way to live my life. I could talk about that the rest of my life. I was the guy that came through with that statement. FedEx is poking fun at the fact that we all want more meaning than being the guy that ultimately says, hey, I know what it is that uh, should help us save some cash the way we ship internationally. They know that we are wired and that we are built to have, ultimately, uh, a great yearning for us. We said last week, man is a stubborn seeker after meaning. And FedEx folks know that if all you understand about life and what gives you meaning is knowing how to ship internationally, you've lived a pretty sad life. And yet what they're trying to do is say, you know what, you want to get ahead in business? This is not a bad thing to remember because it will help you do good in industry. But I'll tell you what, even if you make that comment, you work your way up from the mailroom to become CEO of that company, and that's all your life is about, I think FedEx would say, it's probably a sad way to make meaning out of your life. It reminds me of one of my favorite stories, and I use it a lot of times when I'm talking to parents specifically about their kids. You probably have heard it before, just humor me if you have it, I'll make it quick. It's about a small group of guys that are on an airplane flying along, there's a Pilot, there's a Boy Scout, there's a man who uh, had a long relationship with the Lord in ministry, and there's uh, the world's smartest man. And all of a sudden, there's a little sputtering, and the pilot walks back and says, guys, i got some terrible news. This plane's about to go down, and they got worse news on top of that. There's only three parachutes, and I, you know, uh, strapped one on, because I was the first to be aware of our coming problem and impending doom. i got three kids and a wife. I can't really hang around to figure out what to do with the other two, but I'm gone. Now, the plane he goes. And so right away, you know, the smartest man in the world stands up, starts to put on his other parachute. He looks at this pastor, he looks at this young man, and he says, let me just tell you something. He said, I am on the brink of figuring out this whole cancer deal. Uh, I've been working with the world economists to get rid of poverty in third world countries. There's way too much in this brain for me to go down right now. We're too close to too many things. So I can't stay in this plane. I'm going to take this thing, and out he goes. 
And with that, you know, the guy that loved the Lord and served uh, in ministry for a while kind of looked at this young boy and said, Son, I've lived a long, fruitful life. I'm satisfied with what I've done. And even more importantly, I am confident uh, and secure in what will happen uh, when this plane, you know, impacts the ground. I want you to take this last backpack. I want you to remember my offer of sacrificial love for you and what that's a picture and illustration of. You take this last parachute, son. You jump out of this plane. You live a long and fruitful and faithful life. And the Boy Scout was kind of doing this the whole time the pastor was talking. And the pastor goes, what are you doing that for? He goes, well, it's, that's really not necessary because the smartest man in the world just jumped out of this plane with my knapsack. All right? <laughs> now, now, when I hear that story, it makes me laugh because I, I, think, about how, uh, I think about how many times you know, kids specifically are looking for meaning in life, and they're looking for something to hold on to. They're, they're trying to grab onto things that will allow them to float through this, the awkward adolescent years, the young adulthood, as they move into manhood, as they try and find meaning, significance, value, and dignity in life. And they're grabbing onto things a lot of times that they think will make them you know, valuable, that they think will make life worth living. And a lot of them are grabbing knapsacks when they think they're grabbing parachutes. Now, you know, the thing about that is I'm not talking today about why we need to invest deeply into our high school you know, in college age and junior high age, you know, young men that are around us. I'm talking to, to y'all because it wasn't that long ago when we were right there. And some of us have kind of, you know, uh, impacted a few times with parachutes that didn't open and deploy the way we thought they would. Or were sinking at a rate that we didn't think that this choice that would give us life, that would keep us afloat from this crash into meaninglessness, you know, we get a little further in our journey, we start to go, have I grabbed a knapsack or have I grabbed something that will give me life? I mean, ultimate real life. And that's ultimately what we're talking about in these five weeks that are here today. What we're trying to offer to you guys is a parachute, not a knapsack. Not something you think will give you meaning in life and dignity and purpose, but something that is tested and sure. And I want you to know, and we are desperate for you to understand, that we think God has no problem with our longing for that. In fact, there's our very first blank this morning. And just as a reminder, if you weren't able to be here with us last week, you know the thing that we gave out last week is available to you on the web. You can go and uh, the actual filled out little sheet that we had, you can get right through a website. It's just watermarkcommunity.org. Um, and so you can go right there. You'll see the men's breakfast handout. And you can kind of go from there. But just starting today, uh, I just want you to know this, that God isn't bothered that we seek after purpose, and or pleasure. Now, this is really a pretty significant deal because so many of us have a view that God, especially on the second one, we, we might know that God wants us to live for an ultimate purpose, but we're not really sure that God wants us to enjoy the purpose that he wants us to live for. In fact, we've got this idea that unless you really suffer, unless you pray 10 hours a day on some hard wooden floor, leave comfort, move to some small village in Africa and live in a hut, you know, uh, and identify with people who don't speak a language that you speak. You don't really love God, and that's the ultimate purpose in life. And that is a way too narrow view, a way too narrow view, a skewed, perverted view of one way that you can find what your purpose might be. See, the Lord doesn't begrudge us at all that we are looking for meaning. He doesn't begrudge us that we're looking for purpose, and, and He doesn't begrudge us that we long for pleasure. But as I, I've written down right there, he does care that we seek it where we can get it. That's Psalm 1611. It's just a simple psalm that says, in his left hand, okay, 
is every good thing, and His right hand are pleasures forever. See, where God is, is every good thing and our pleasures forever. That, that little reference there, the other one that you can go look at later if you so desire, that's Psalm 106. It talks about a group of people that God had been initiating with and reaching out to. He was trying to show them, this is what I want to call you uh, into a relationship with me for, to give you meaning and purpose, to reveal myself to you, to let you be a light to the nations. And it says that they forgot who this God was. And it says that they uh, turned away from him in the wilderness, and they craved after other things. And it says that after a while, when they kept wanting some other things, this is what's so great about God, is it says that the Lord allowed them, it says He gave them the desires of their heart. But then in verse 15 of that Psalm 106, as you went back and look, it says, but He sent leanness to their souls. In other words, He said, if that's the parachute that you want to grab, which is something other than a trust-faith relationship with me, man, you take it, you go, and you leap. But I'm going to love you enough to experience the consequence of your choice. And what we're going to talk about today, that's the way I'm going to start, and I'm going to end up with that very idea. God loves you enough to let you choose. What it is that's going to give you meaning in life, what's going to allow you to land safely at the end of this journey in a way that you want to land with a ride that was pleasant, not horrifying, not with this awful sense of dread. Now, I will just tell you, if you jump out of a plane uh, without a parachute, you can have a good time for a significant amount of time. Uh, one of the things I did, uh, like many guys in this room, I'm sure, enjoyed that, thought about that being a good idea and being a lot of fun. And, I, and I, I've done that. I've done uh, you know, an accelerated freefall class where I got to jump out of a plane from some 14,000 feet and for about, you know, uh, 60 to 90 seconds, just have a good free fall, just come flying down there like that. And it's a lot of fun. But I can assure you, I was glad when that adrenaline rush was over and I could find out that I was going to also land now rather safely so I could continue to live life a different way. And, and what, what I would tell you is that you can find uh, momentary success and have a pretty good ride without God. You can do it. But you're not going to have a sustained, pleasurable ride without what we're talking about today. Let's jump ahead. Here's what I want you to know. that The scriptures and what God's trying to do and calling us into this relationship that we started talking about last week is that He wants us to experience life. He wants us to experience um, a quality of life that we're not going to get any other way than in living in the context of how He created us and how He uh, designed us to experience life. In fact, there's a great little section of Scripture, one of my favorite metaphors in this book that God has used to explain to us how we're designed and how He is, uh, wants to live in relationship with us. He talks to a group of people that lived in a rather arid region where water supply was a very valuable thing. And what they used to do to get their water supplies, they would dig sometimes holes in the ground. They were called cisterns. And they would plaster them sometimes with uh, you know, the most solid substance they could find, but just packed down plaster of some kind in this hole they dug in the ground, and they would hope that it would rain and water would come trickling down off that mountain, you know, over the uh, mountain goat species and everything else. But we just wanted water to come down here and make its way into our little cistern so that we could have some water. And what God says in this little illustration, He says, what have you done? He said, you have forsaken me, this one that has called you into a relationship, you've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, which when you're in an arid desert region, the most valuable thing you could have, the most necessary thing for life, is a, is a continual fresh water source. And he said, you've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, 
and you've hewn for yourself cisterns. And he said this, instead of having fresh spring water, you take what comes running down off the mountain during a rain and you hope it gets into this little basin so that you've got a water supply. And he says, worse than that, you've hewn for yourself cisterns, broken cisterns that hold no water. You don't want to trust in me. Come drink where I am. So you make your own water supply system, and what you find out is it's not as good as mine to begin with, and secondly, it's broken. It's not reliable. You can go to bed. There might be six inches in it. You wake up in the morning, but because there's a crack in that cistern, you go to draw water out, and you find yourself thirstier than you wanted to be. And God says, has there ever been anything like this before? Why would anybody do this? It doesn't make sense. The reason we do that as men is because not only are we stubborn seekers after meaning, it's because we are stubborn and because we have a hard time trusting that anybody really has our best interest in mind. What I want to share again today is that God has our best interest in mind and he goes to no small effort to prove that. God does not begrudge us for longing after purpose. He doesn't even begrudge us for longing after pleasure. In fact, because we're made in the image of God, we are designed to experience pleasure. The scripture talks about how God delights, God loves, God enjoys, God laughs. But what God doesn't want us to do is to have legitimate, and this is your next little blank right there if you choose to fill it in, He'll never let us meet a legitimate need that He's created us and designed us for in an illegitimate way. The next blank is kind of like it. I just want to say it a different way. He, meaning you know, God, he will never let us meet a God-given desire in a God-forbidden way. See, again, there will be momentary successes, but there will not be sustained joy in, in, in meeting this God-given desire. You'll find, hey, I'm satisfied right now. I'm not wanting. I'm not lacking. But when you get alone in the quietness of your world and you sit still, apart from a deep and abiding relationship with your Creator, there's always going to be that voice saying, you know what, you're really not happy. You really don't have enough. You're really not as secure as you think you are, and you know it. And what a lot of us do is we suppress that and busy ourselves with some other form of activity or believe it's just because we haven't gotten where we need to get yet so that we can quiet that voice. Or we medicate ourselves out of having to deal with that reality. And what God is saying all the time is there's another option, and that is deal with that reality. Know that those desires that I've given you are to train you towards truth, not to deep, drive you deeper into rebellion against me. You know, at this, this time of year with the Super Bowl coming up and all that, I, I think about different stories. And, you know, in Dallas with a group of men, basically, you know, this median age, a lot of us remember certainly the Super Bowls of the 90s. Many guys in this room remember... Uh, the first Super Bowls that the Dallas teams went through. And we think about how uh, guys like you know, Cliff Harris and Charlie Waters are now celebs that are kind of this old you know, guard that have written new books that have come out. And one of the stories that Cliff Harris and Charlie Waters tell is that after they had won their very first Super Bowl, they were in the locker room, and they looked at each other and they said, you know what, I hate to admit it, but this is kind of depressing. You know, most of us hear that and we go, well, how can that be depressing? They had just won their first Super Bowl because... The game is over. The, 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 the challenge is over. They looked at each other and they kind of said, is this all there is? It's a little depressing. Now we've gotten to the top of the mountain and there's no other mountain to climb. And our meaning and purpose was coming to the way we we're going to climb this mountain. And we've just reached the pinnacle of heights that men can climb. Guys that have been at the top of the Everest will tell you the same thing. Is it a rush? Is it a great accomplishment? Yeah. But you know what? Now that I'm one of the few men that have been to the top of this mountain... 
Okay, but my life still might lack some meaning and purpose. So there's momentary successes, but not that sustained joy. Uh, this is the classic illustration of this. Those of you guys that get Sports Illustrated and are fans of Rick Riley, who writes that last little page, wrote a great little story not long ago on one little guy that um, uh, not long ago was the darling of the NFL. I'm talking about Kurt Warner. And um, I can remember when the Rams came through, right after they'd won the Super Bowl, they uh, played a game at Texas Stadium, and I went out and did the chapel for the Rams. And I will tell you, of all the teams, all the pro teams or college teams that I've had a chance to spend some time with, there was something different about that group of men. There was a, there was a real depth and integrity to that chapel service with that group of professional athletes. And there were many of them that were at the pinnacle of their career success. And, and, you know, Warner was there. was one of the most humble among them. In fact, was one of the first guys in the room and uh, had a little conversation. You would not, you couldn't tell at all that this guy was just a Super Bowl MVP, the league MVP. You know, the coach, March, came in. It was actually his first season. Vermeil had retired, and March was there. Again, uh, a very humble guy, if not uh, undiscerning about when to kick and when to go for it, but a nice guy. <laughs> and... Uh, and, and, and that, there was a difference about that team. Each guy that came in, you know, from the linemen right on through the D-backs, all the guys had a, just a depth to them and a kindness to them and a strength to them. And they were the darlings of the NFL at that time. This is what Rick Riley writes right now. He said, sports stink. He said, sports can be crueler than a bald man's winning free blow dries for life. Sports, sport, yeah, some of you guys can understand that more than others, I'm sure. Sports will lift you up in front of the whole assembly, crown you king, and then give you a wedgie. Writes Rick Riley. It says, take the case of Kurt Warner. Two years ago, nobody in sports sizzled more than the St. Louis Rams quarterback. He was Elvis in a chin strap. He could throw a spiral through a cufflink hole. He won two MVPs. He won a Super Bowl. And two years later, he nearly won another. He remains the highest rated career passer in NFL history. He hung with Leno and Letterman. He wrote a book. He got his own segment on two TV shows in St. Louis. Destiny kissed Kurt Warner at every turn. And then, for no damn reason, he writes, Destiny decided to Ralph all over him. After two years of hand and shoulder injuries, plus his third concussion, he appears to have literally lost his grip. In the season-opening loss to New York Giants this year, he fumbled six times, lost his eighth straight start. He hasn't played since. The spirals that came off his hand like spun gold two years earlier seem to come off now like frozen hams. Now he's the backup to Mark Bulger. He spends his weekdays as the world's only $9 million a year scout teamer. Once the cool couple in the NFL, Kurt and his wife Brenda, are getting scratched like in-street lottery tickets. For three years, Kurt says, everybody wanted my wife to come here, come there, come speak to their groups. Everybody wanted the inside scoop in the Warners. Now there's, well, he's not playing well. What do we need her for? What curdles his milk, Riley writes, is his belief that he can still be the best quarterback in the league. I know I can still play in this game as well as anybody, he said. Why then did he do what he did three weeks ago during a game in Chicago when St. Louis coach Mike March saw Bulger drowning against the Bears? He turned to Warner and asked, you ready to go in, Kurt? But instead of clamping on his helmet and warming up, Warner said, Coach, to be honest with you, I don't think that would be the fairest thing to do with Mark. I know what I would want if I was in there, and he deserves a chance to fight through it and pull our team to a victory. So March stayed with Bulger, who came back to win the game. Talks then about why he did that, and then it goes on to say, even if Warner has lost the mojo as fast as it came, if the salad days are wilted for Kurt, let it be said that he's never changed. Biggie or Bagger, celebrity or calamity, 
He's never changed his values or his manners. In fact, he said, for this piece, he returned my phone call within 20 minutes. It's Kurt Warner, he told my answering service. Kirk Warren, she said. No, Warner. Kurt Warner. <laughs> Hold on, Mr. Warren, she said to him. <laughs> Sports is heartless, is the way Riley ends that article. You see, I'll tell you, a lot of us think, and, and, you know, and, and is it troublesome, I'm sure, to a guy like Kurt Warner is a competitor to not be able to be out there competing where he thinks he can compete? Yes. But it's the guy that, at least by the testimony of Riley and from the smart interaction that I've had, I can tell, had a purpose and meaning in life that surpassed being able to throw golden spun spirals. And being the darling of the NFL, there's a strength and a depth there that's going to get this guy through, even when the parachute that is success in the public eye quits opening. There's a different parachute that this guy lives under. Is it wrong to drive and to try and succeed and win? Absolutely not. But to make that your parachute, to try and have that legitimate need for meaning and purpose and greatness, to meet that legitimate need in an illegitimate way, God will never let us get away with. He'll always leave that haunting ask. Are you sure? God loves you, my next little blank says there, and He wants you to experience life, and He wants you to experience it abundantly. Let me just tell you what it says in the scripture about this God who's calling you out and saying, listen, you know, if you come into a relationship with me, in fact, if you flip it over, you'll see that little Psalm uh, 23 at the very top. This talks about when God shepherds somebody through life, it says he prepares a table before them in the presence of their enemies. You've anointed my head with oil and my cup overflows that which I need for life. I'm not lacking. It's overflowing the life that I need. Not just a partially amount, but everything that I need satisfied me is coming right there in my life. That's what Jesus said. It says, the thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy. To steal ultimate peace in your life. To kill your self-respect. To destroy your sense of hope. But I've come to give life, and I want you to have life abundantly. So God wants us to have life. God wants us to experience a purpose and a meaning and a strength and a passion for life. That's consistent with who he created us to be. Now skip that next blank. I'm going to come to it secondly. But I want to make this observation right there. But however, to be separated from him. See where it said that? To be separated is the blank. From him is to be separated from life. That doesn't mean, again, that there is not momentary successes. But there's not that sustaining life. It's like being really thirsty and you grab yourself a Coke and you get that drink and it just tastes so good. And it does for a second satisfy that thirst. But when you drink sugar water, what happens? You become only thirstier still. It's like being in the middle of an ocean surrounded by water and options, right? But those of us that uh, are familiar with that kind of scenario and story, what do you die from when you drink salt water? You die from dehydration. It's just a cruel irony. That the salt in there makes you crave for the real water that will give nourishment to the body that God designed in you. And even though you're surrounded by an ocean of options, if you don't have the life that you were created, the water that you were created to give you life, you can drink all day long and what you will die from is the thirst that you seek to satisfy apart from that which God destined you to need. This is really what goes on in, in the garden, early in this book where God's revealing his love for humankind, his love for man, and his desire for man to have full life, 
is, is he said, look, I'm going to call you into a relationship with me. I'm going to put you in a place. He describes it as a garden. A garden is a place that is bountiful with every provision, every need that is met. We call it paradise. And he said, you can stay here in paradise where I am, in my home, in my abode, with you on this earth, as long as you trust and believe that relationship with me is what gives you this significance of provision. And God, right away, called man to a faith relationship with him. He said, look, I'm not going to make you love me. I'm not going to make you trust me. But I'm going to tell you, this is good. It's very good, in fact, to use my own words. But I'll tell you, there's one thing I don't want you to do right here. And you don't need it. It's not going to make this a better place. In fact, it's the one thing that will drive you out of this place. And I'm going to call you to trust me and have faith in me and to believe in me and believe my word. Don't eat of this one particular tree. Now what happened is we know that the liar, the deceiver who comes to steal, kill, and destroy showed up and said, hey, you don't have life. This isn't as good as it can get. In fact, why would you want to, man, limit yourself to life the way the God who created you says you should find meaning in life? You need this to have meaning in life. Don't trust God's word. You need to eat of the tree of knowledge so that you can yourself know the difference between good and evil so you can decide for yourself what you want. But what we were not told is that in knowing now the difference between good and evil because we are not like God created, not created, because we're not like God um, innately good, when we can choose between good and evil, we will not choose that which is good. See, God knows no error. He knows no darkness. He knows no sin. There is no corruption in Him. That's not true with you and I. You give you and I the opportunity to choose between good and evil. We're not going to always choose good. God will. And so what happened in the garden is when man said, I'm not going to trust God, I'm not going to live by faith and believe in Him, I'm going to find meaning and significance, I'm going to decide what I want with my own life, what happened is we lost that life that God called us into. And you were driven. Don't think of being driven out of a garden in the sense that you're being driven out of a place where there's a bunch of flower shows, because as guys, we kind of go, what's the big deal about that? Give me the wilderness, give me adventure, give me the seas. No, in that metaphor, in that picture, and it's more than that, it's a historical event, but in the picture of leaving a garden to be thrown out of a place of provision, not to fight for that which God wanted to provide for us, we started to lose life. And in fact, the judgment was death. When you separate yourself from me, you will not have what I alone can provide. That's a little reference to John 17, 3. And this is life, to know God, to know Jesus Christ. And apart from him, you will have momentary feelings and illusions of life, but you're not going to have the life that you were created to experience. That's all that says right there. And so what God says is those of you that have understood that the God who created the garden, the God that created you, the God that makes provision for you to come back into a relationship with him until that day he restores this to a paradise, when you know that, the God will be most glorified in you that know that when you live as if you're most satisfied in him. In other words, you ought to go out and compete like crazy to be the starting quarterback on whatever football team or whatever metaphor that represents in your life. You ought to seek to be whatever it is that you think you want to be in your profession, in your community. But you ought to, as you seek to fully use your skills and potential, whether it's athletic or intellectual or whatever it might be, God says, you do your best. But if you, know, uh, if you get handed a bad deal or something happens where all of a sudden you're not throwing those golden spirals, don't. Cave, because that's not ultimately what your life is about. 
It delights God and glorifies God when we use our skills, that if it puts us on a national stage, that's great. But we should not say I'm only significant as meaningful as what I can do in terms of the world saying that I'm great. So go ahead and work your best. There's nothing wrong with prosperity through hard work. There's a responsibility with how you steward that prosperity in light of who this God is and the gifts that you've been given. But at the end of the day, God says, you run hard after those things in this earth, but don't make that makes you essentially great. You make sure that whatever you do, and I'll tell you, that I think Kurt Warner is having a chance to live this out right now, that you show that you're satisfied in me, Kurt, that you're not satisfied in me because I have you throwing golden spirals through cufflinks. And all of us as men can say, I love you, Lord, whether or not there's fruit on the vine or not, but when those times come, when the health isn't there, when the business isn't turning over like we want, when relationships are tough, if your life squelches in joy like those that don't know God, then you've got to really go back and evaluate what it is that makes you satisfied. Is it the God that was in the garden? Repentance, men, then, is simply this. And one of the things we're going to call and ask some of you guys to consider is to, is to repent of that which you have grabbed, thinking it was a parachute, but it wasn't the parachute that God designed. It was a knapsack. To repent of this idea that your cistern is where you can get your thirst quenched. And all repentance is, the best definition of repentance I ever heard is repentance. That's the blank right there. Repentance is letting go of something that feels life-giving. That's the best definition I can tell you of repent. When God calls you to repent, what he's saying is, look, trust me again. And I know you think that you're going to find life separate and apart from me, but I'm asking you to reconsider that. One guy said this a long time ago. He said, sin is where we take a perfectly natural, loving ambition, and we desperately try to fill it without God. Say that one more time. Sin is when we take a perfectly natural, loving ambition, and we desperately try and fill that without God. And God says, turn from that, man, and come back, work hard, do all you can in industry and life, but know that your meaning is significant. Don't try and do it without me, because no matter what kind of success you experience on this world, it is fleeting at best. All right, I have a little question down there for you. It just simply says this, something to chew on this week. Since God knows what is best and has your best interest in mind, He wants you to have ultimate purpose. He wants you to experience true pleasure. What do you need to let go of that feels life-giving to you? And then I, for some reason, lost some words here, but where can I glorify God more by showing satisfaction, and this is the words you need to write down because I dropped them, only in Him. Where can I glorify God more by showing satisfaction only in Him? Pick up the pace with you here a little bit. Now let me go back up and fill in that one little blank that I missed because this now gets to the heart of some of the application for today, and that is simply this. And what you're going to be reading this next week is that God wants you, this is now up there in the top that we passed over, God wants you to worship Him, and He created you for that purpose. Now before that bores you to death, I want you to look down um, underneath that second application where it says God seeks. The blank up top was God wants you to worship Him, and He created you for that purpose, and you kind of go, man, what do you mean? Why would He call me and for the purpose to worship? Don't think worship the way that you have been programmed and you know, to, to think of worship. I'm going to tell you why God created you to be a worshiper. Here we go. That blank is God seeks worshipers for the same reason that God seeks the lost. 
Why does God seek the lost? Because He wants those that are lost to find their way. He wants those that are not in the midst of experiencing life to find their life in Him. And when it says that God created you to worship Him, and He created you specifically for that purpose, what He means is God created you to be in relationship with Him, the author and giver of life. To separate yourself from that is a slow death in terms of meaning, purpose, satisfaction, and peace. And ultimately, a greater death. Now let me just explain this idea of worship to you. And we go up now uh, where it says, if you think. You see that? The first, if you think. If you think Sunday is the blank, when you think worship, you need to think again. Okay? Because a lot of you guys, when I tell you that God created you for worship, and He created you specifically for that purpose, and God seeks worshipers, God does not seek guys that will make Him feel good by funneling into buildings with crosses on top of them. If you, when you hear me say worship, if you think Sunday, I want you to think again. Worship is everything you do all day, every day, constantly. Let me just take that a little deeper. If you think music, if you think music when you think worship, you need to think again. If you think any form when you think worship, you need to think again. Do you know there was no rites, no forms, no systems uh, at all in the first several chapters of your Bible, and yet there was worship that was there. It was about relationship and believing that God is all that He said He was and that we are created to be in relationship with Him and that ultimate joy is being in a relationship with the God that created us and loves us. So don't think music. Don't think forms. Don't think an hour. You think about a relationship with God. Now we're going to go in order the rest of the way. If you go back down into where, underneath where it said God seeks worshipers, I'll just tell you this, God doesn't want us to pay a spiritual tax. He wants us to worship in spirit and truth. What God is looking for, the kind of worshipers that God seeks, the scripture says in two different places we find out what God's really wanting. When you talk about what's God want from you and I, God wants people who worship him in spirit and truth. That's the reference to that John 4 passage, if you want to go back and look at it later in the back of your sheet right there, verses 23 and 24. These are the kind of worshipers that God seeks. Those that worship in spirit, meaning with their heart, their soul, and in truth, who worship God for who He is, not a God that they've created Him as. And they have a desire to know God as He's revealed Himself. God's greatest commandment was asked, Jesus was asked one time, hey, what's the greatest commandment? He said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And isn't it great that God's greatest commandment fulfills God's greatest desire? And isn't it great that God, who's always got our best interests in mind, that his greatest desire, which is us to worship him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, meets our greatest need. There was a time when Moses said to God, man, would you show me your glory? And I think when Moses thought is what most of us would think, we would think, God, just crack this mountain, you know, rip this mountain apart, let the, let the heavens part, lightning come crashing down, you know, turn me into a nuke, and then turn me back to Moses again. I don't know what he thought, but show me your greatness. And what God said is, I'm going to show you my greatness. And the story in Exodus 33, what God did is he said, Moses, you can't see me in all my glory right now because I haven't given you the grace and provision to be able to do that, but I will give you enough grace to catch this about me. You're about to see my glory. And what God showed Moses when he showed him his greatness and his glory is God showed Moses his attributes and his character. And you can sum up God's attributes and character in the main two things that everybody on this earth longs for ultimately. 
What do you think those two things are? What's everybody in this earth cry out for? This is, a, this is a lousy place because we don't have enough love. People don't love each other. No one loves me. There's not enough love in this world. And specifically, we cry out because those that don't love but are evil and perpetrate harm on others need to have consequence to it. And what do folks cry out for? Where is justice? And I'm telling you, this is what God said to Moses. You want to see who I am? Then I'm going to pass before you and I'm going to declare who I am. And God said, I am a God full of loving kindness, mercy, and truth. And I extend my kindness to generations. But I by no means will let the guilty unpunished. You want to know my greatness, Moses? In me is a satisfaction for everything you and everybody created like you longs for. In me is perfect love, and in me is perfect justice. And both of those will both perfectly be accomplished one day. God doesn't want us as a group of people, to pay some spiritual tax. He wants us to worship in spirit and truth. And he wants us to worship him with all of our heart. And don't think Sunday. Think everything you do. God doesn't then... Uh, is, ne- next blank. If you want the worship God, stop trying harder. And start trusting more. Let me give you a quick illustration on this. And I purposely let these last few ones to go quickly because they're where I want you to understand. I want you to settle in on these ideas. But watch this. A number of years ago, stop trying harder to worship God. Start trusting Him more. That's what worship is. Say, God, I'm going to trust you in every aspect of the day. As I go to find significance, meaning, purpose, peace in life, as I go to treat other people, I'm going to let you inform how I should do that. A number of years ago, I took my kids, my two oldest girls, uh, to a candy store, like a 7-Eleven. We wanted a bike ride, and we stopped on this bike ride. And... Um, and we walked in, I said, you can have anything you want, you know, one, but any one thing you want. And so, you know, my little girl, my oldest at that time, this is a number of years ago, was, was about four, and the other one was two. Now, the four-year-old walks right in and looks at all this candy, that wall of candy, and she looks up at me and she says, Dad, what would you get? Now, my two-year-old is, you know looking about 18 inches high, kind of hunched over like this, and she locks in on the first bright package. The first bright package that she locked in on happened to be a fireball, all right? And she put her hand on it, and she had found life, okay? Now, the four-year-old knew me better. The four-year-old had a different uh, amount of revelation about what kind of dad I was, that I wasn't looking to buy the cheapest thing. I was really looking to give them the greatest joy. And I introduced Allie to the wonder of tropical-flavored Skittles. There's a whole bag of individually, you know, separate pieces of candy that will last you a long time. And I said, Allie, I think you would really like this, this purple bag of Skittles. Kirby, I think you would really like this, if you're asking me. And she goes, I'm not asking you. I've got the fireball. It's right here where I can see it. I don't need what you can see. I don't need your experience. I don't need your perspective. I've got the fireball. Look how bright it is compared to that pale, sweet tart in pastel color. I got the fireball. And I said to Kirby, I go, Kirby, you're, I'm going to let you get the fireball. She's two. You know, you might go, man, if you're a loving dad, you would have, no, intervened right there. Let her cry for a moment, but given her the sprees, given her the, given her the, the skittles, and let her be happy. No. I thought, this is a great opportunity for her to learn to trust me. <laughs> and I said, all right, Kirby, that is hot, taste, no good, you know. This is life. That is a fireball. 
All right. So I went up there. I dropped my six cents for her fireball and my 69 cents for her Skittles. And I put them out there in the back of my bike and we started riding. And immediately there was joy and anguish. Okay. And, you know, uh, I've got my water bottle. I can't get it to you now. It's going to be a long ride home. I told you. Don't do I stopped and we took care of the fireball. But, but here's the thing, is that the way that Allie loved me, and here's what I want to, want to walk you through this. This is, so many of us, we go, I don't want your perspective, God. I'm not going to trust you. I know what I can see right here. I don't need any other revelation on the other side. I know where life is. I've got my hand on this. And don't tell me it's going to sting my mouth. This thing is wrapped so nice. It looks like it's going to be fine. It looks like it's going to taste good. I even like the daring little flames that are on it. Because I'm a man. And we put that sucker in our mouth, and it's not long before we start to go. We, we spit it out. You know what we do? We go back to the candy store again, and most of us don't start to do, hey, what would you get, Dad? We grab another piece of candy, and the whole time God's over here with a pack of Skittles, Simon, when you're ready to trust somebody other than you, if you want to experience all these candies before you settle on the one thing that you're built to be satisfied by, you can do that. But you're going to waste a lot of money, a lot of time, and have a lot of pain. Or you can let me know that I love you. I delight. I want you to have pleasure. I'm giving you the bag of Skittles. See, here's, what, here's progression right here. Uh, what, what should happen is the older my kids get, the more they should look at me. And, and this is the way it should start. As a young child of faith, they should say, Dad, what would you do? And then a little bit later, as they get to know me, they should say, Dad, tell me why you chose what you chose. Why did you choose the Skittles and not the fireball? And I start to teach my child now the moral why, not just the moral what. See, it's not legalism. It's not just that Skittles are where life is. It's the principle of what are in Skittles as opposed to the principle of what's in a fireball. And I explain to them why this candy would be good. My point is this. Watch this. When you train a child in the way that he should go, you don't just always tell him, you can eat this candy, you can watch this movie, you can drink this stuff, you don't drink that stuff, you don't do this stuff. What I start to do as they get older is I start to say, you tell me what you think you should do. What should you choose? And why should you choose it? And the progression should be, Dad, what should you choose? Dad, tell me why you chose that. Dad, do you think this is a good choice? And then all of a sudden, because of the love relationship, and they know that I've trained them up in a way, and I've never steered them wrong because I have their best interest in mind, I always want them to enjoy themselves, they should start to go, I'm going to choose this, just like my dad taught me to love this. See that? That's where I'm at in relationship with God. And those of you that don't understand what it means to worship God, God is not making me eat stuff I don't like. He loves me, and he wants me to trust him. And sometimes there's some candies that are well-wrapped in this earth. They go, I'd like to taste that. And he said, Todd, look, it's packaged extremely well. But you don't know that the dead are there. Trust me. And I can either say, you know what, Lord, I think I'm going to go ahead and taste this one. I'm going to go ahead and run hard after this one for a few years. No, I can say I'm going to trust my father. And often now as we get a little older, we can start to see we've had a few fireballs in our mouth. But all it does is it should drive us right back to where he is. Here we go. God doesn't expect you. I'll just put this down. That God doesn't expect you to be perfect or even mature so that he can love you. He loves you so he wants you to become more perfect and more mature. And that's why God's given us his word. That's why he calls us into a relationship with him. He gives us the Bible. He says, be, become more like me. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you might prove what the will of God is. Read my word. Understand my word, apply my word, become more like my son, become more perfect and more mature, and don't just know what to do, know why you do it. Guys ask me all the time, Todd, do you drink? 
You know, they want to know, what, 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 do, what do folks who love God do? Do they drink? You know what? I'm not going to answer that question for you because it doesn't matter. You have to understand this. It doesn't matter whether I have a beer or not. It doesn't matter if I have a glass of wine or not. What matters is why I would or why I wouldn't. You know, there's probably some guys in this room that have this perverted legalistic idea that if they drank a beer that God somehow wouldn't love them more and the best thing you can do is have a beer. There's some guys in this room that probably have a beer to an excess that they need to realize, you know what? I should think about what I'm doing and how it affects other people. And I should take my liberty, not for my own sake, but factor in others in the context of that. My family, my kids, those that look to me for influence. You can drink for the wrong reasons or not drink for the wrong reasons. But as you become more perfect and mature and think like God in all things like that, you begin to have a, a heart and a life that reflects Him. And so the last blank is simply this. You are free to choose what you want to worship, but you're not free to choose the consequences of what you choose. You are free to choose what you want to worship, but you're not free to choose the consequences of it. You can grab whatever candy you want off the shelf of life, but you're not free to choose what that's going to do to the inside of your mouth or your stomach when it sits there. And what I would tell you guys, some of you all that are still not sure that this God who wants you to have life, and I want to remind you again, He wants you to experience life. I would tell you that if you like what you got, keep doing what you're doing. But if you keep doing what you're doing, I'm going to tell you, you're eventually not going to like what you got. You might be in the middle of some momentary success, but I'll tell you, it's not going to last unless it is tied to the Lord. What we're going to talk about these next three weeks is what your life would look like if you would choose to begin to go, Dad, what would you do? Father who loves me, who has my best interest in mind, who wants me to have pleasure, what would you have me choose? That's what we're going to talk about these next three weeks. Father, thanks for these men, for the chance that we had to gather, enjoy each other, enjoy good food, and consider you. I pray that you would not let us off easily uh, dealing with the idea that you have our best interests in mind, that you want us to be worshipers, not because you want us to file into a church, but because you want us to trust you. Not try harder to please you, to tr- to be more diligent to trust you and let you speak into our life so that we might experience life as you wanted, so the garden can seep back in, even in the midst of a desert of a world that is polluted by wrong choices. I pray for the friendships that are here that they would deepen. If we read the next seven chapters in this book, Lord, you'd use them to remind us of what we considered today and that you'd bring us back here next week so we could begin to say, okay, Lord, as I stand before the candy shelf of life, what would you have me choose? And we could honor you not by trying to do more things, but by trusting you more, and we would know what that is in Christ's name. Amen. Have a great week.